morning. Happy Sabbath. Nice to see each one of you, and I am excited about opening up the Word of God. Now, Pathfinders, I have a special mission for you. If Pathfinders, you notice, are Pathfinder Law, and how many are there Pathfinders? There's eight of them. It is my goal to try to mention all eight of the Pathfinder Laws in the sermon and hopefully be referencing the pledge as well. So Pathfinder, see if you can take note of that. And we are going to be looking at a couple of chapters in the book of Matthew. So why don't we bow our heads and we'll ask God to be with us as we begin. Father, we're gathered here together on a high Sabbath day. And we are opening up an incredibly important and special book. Father, the Holy Word of God. Lord, we're humbled as we open the scriptures because we cannot understand them without your Holy Spirit. And so we ask your presence to be here, that you would guide us, and that you would speak your message to each one of our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. What are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be doing? That question was asked many times throughout the Pathfinder year. Right? When you have young people, and let's say that you're working on the knot tying honor, as good as the Pathfinder staff are, inevitably someone at some point in time wanting to be involved in the activity will ask, What am I supposed to be doing? When I was in college, I appreciated teachers that set clear expectations. They gave me a syllabus. They said, here is when the quizzes are. Here is when the tests are. Here is what you are supposed to do. And I think as human beings, we all at some point in time ask that question, what am I supposed to be doing? What is my purpose? with Pathfinder campouts, with doing honors as mentioned, with working on our booklets. We've asked that question at some point in time, what am I supposed to do? And the question that I would like to pose this morning is before Jesus comes back. We know that he's coming back soon. He's not here yet. Before he comes back, what are we supposed to be doing? And that may be an obvious question to some of you. Well, Pastor Jeff, the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is similar, love your neighbor as yourself. Or maybe we could say we need to preach the gospel. But I want to know, what are we supposed to be doing? What does the Bible have to say? And more specifically, what does Jesus have to say about this? What is our to-do list before Jesus comes back? How many of you are to-do list kind of people? Yeah? You wake up, you write down, all right, here's 10 things that I need to get done today. I'll prioritize them. This, all right, some people are to-do list type of people. And what is our to-do list before Jesus comes back? Well, I believe that Jesus answers that question in Matthew 24 and 25. So I encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 24. And Pathfinders in the front, there's a Bible in the, right underneath your seat there. 
And if you did not bring your own, hopefully there's one in the pew in front of you. Matthew chapter 24. Now, when someone says Matthew 24, and someone go ahead and uh, give the answer, what do you think of when someone says Matthew 24? Signs of the end or signs of the times. That would be a common answer that many people would give. And it's true. In Matthew 24, Jesus gives signals or signs as to when his coming is near. Signs of the times. Nations will rage against nations. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquakes. We've heard these things before, but as we read them, at least when I read them, One, I think, well, these have been happening for a long time, and yes, they will increase in intensity, but at the same time, Jesus never explicitly, he never pins down, this is exactly when I'm going to come. He kind of leaves the details vague, yeah, here's some things that will be happening, and Jesus does that very intentionally. And the reason why is in verse 36. Notice the transition in verse 36. Matthew 24, verse 36, after Jesus shares all these signs of the times, how he's going to come back, verse 36 says, but of that day and hour, does it say everyone knows? No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples understood a very important point. What Jesus wanted to drive home was that no one knows exactly except God when he will come back. In fact, Jesus wanted to emphasize this point so much in this speech or talk that he gives that he mentions it a total of five times in Matthew 24 and 25. We just looked at the first one, and I want us to briefly look at the other four times that Jesus says, hey, No one knows exactly when I'm coming back. Notice verse 42 of Matthew 24. Verse 42 of Matthew 24, the Bible reads, Watch therefore, for you do not know what your hour the Lord is coming. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. Second time that is mentioned. Third time, verse 44. Jesus says, verse 44 of Matthew 24, Therefore... You also be what, everyone? Ready. For the Son of Man is coming at 9 a.m. Know what it says? No. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Third time that that is mentioned. Notice verse 50 of Matthew 24. Verse 50 of Matthew 24, in a parable that Jesus gives, he says, The master of that servant will come on a day... When he is not looking for him, and at an hour he is not aware of. Fourth time. All right, Jesus, we're getting your point. We don't know when you're coming. But he mentions it one more time. Time number five in Matthew 25 and verse 13, our scripture reading verse that Kirsten read. Matthew 25, verse 13, the Bible says, Last time, watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Wow. Five different times in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus reiterates the same point. We can know the signs that he's coming soon. We can know that he's coming near, but nobody knows the date 
or time period. Why? Or maybe the disciples were thinking, all right, Jesus, we get it. Five times you mentioned, over and over, we don't know when you're coming, but what are we supposed to be doing? We know it's going to be a surprise, but what is our role? What's our purpose? What are we supposed to be doing? I believe that Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 gives three things that we should be doing of paramount importance to be doing before he comes back. If you want to make a to-do list, here are things that I need to be doing before Jesus comes While he's coming back, these are things I want to be found doing. Three things I believe are found in these chapters. And the first item on the to-do list, Jesus explains with three parables. He takes three parables to, I believe, say a similar thing. The first parable is in verse 43 of Matthew 24. So notice verse 43 of Matthew 24. Jesus tells a parable. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what time period or known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Now that makes sense. If a thief sent me a letter in the mail and said that sometime in the next 24 hours I will be coming in, breaking into your house and stealing your things, then I would be alert. If I knew that the thief was coming to my house, I would be observant. I would watch. I would tell the police. I would tell my family members. I would say, all right, we got to be ready. Let's be prepared and let's watch. Jesus essentially says, be constantly expectant of my return as a householder who expects his house to be broken into. Have the same amount of watchfulness or readiness. And this is why in verse 44, that's what Jesus says. Therefore, right after that parable, he says, you also be ready, for you don't know when he's going to come. Well, parable number two, Jesus continues this theme of urgency, and he tells a parable about a faithful servant and an evil servant. Notice verse 45 of Matthew 24. The Bible says, who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. So there's a master and he's looking for a faithful and wise servant to take control or take care of his household to make sure there's food on the table, to make sure the lawn's mowed, to make sure that things are taken care of. Well, verse 26, or excuse me, verse 46 adds something interesting. Verse 46 says, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. In other words, blessed is the servant that is found doing the things the master wants him to do, that is preparing the house when he comes back. If the master comes back and the wise servant is preparing the house, He's making sure the lawn is mowed. He's making sure the house is taken care of all the time. Then he doesn't have to worry about when the master is going to come back because he's doing those things. But then the Bible describes an evil servant, verse 48, 
But if that evil servant, so this is a different one that's evil, says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and an hour that he's not aware of. Two different servants, two distinctions. And Jesus mentions that we should be in parable too, like the faithful and wise servant, be watching and waiting in expectation. But parable two brings in an interesting point, and that is this. We should not be waiting like this, twiddling our thumbs, zippity-doo-dah, zippity-am. Just looking at, right? Parable two, Jesus says, wait, not in idleness, but wait and work at the same time. He brings in an element that's not just watching and sitting, wow, look at that. But there's something to be done while we're waiting. But what is that? Well, I believe that he explains that in the next parable, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, chapter 25. We won't read the whole thing, but the the scene of this parable, which many of us have heard before, is that of a Palestinian wedding. Now, a Palestinian wedding ceremony was typically a drawn-out affair that lasted maybe a week or more. And unlike Western custom, where the couple, after the wedding, would zip away in the car and go to their honeymoon, here in this wedding, after the wedding was done, they would have open house and family members could come and feast with those that just got married. Well, The bridegroom is returning. He's coming. And ten virgins go out to meet the wedding party. But the bridegroom, as you know, was delayed. And so all ten of the virgins slept because they were tired. And in the middle of the night, midnight, someone comes and says, hey, the bridegroom is coming. They wake up. They're fumbling in the dark. They don't have flashlights. They don't have headlamps. But they have little lamps that are filled with oil. The oil burns. They're able to see and find their way with the flame. And as they're scrambling, they realize some of them didn't have their oil. Five of them the Bible describes as wise because they had extra oil even after theirs had burnt out. Five of them the Bible describes as foolish because they they had not prepared. So the difference between the two groups is determined by the preparation they made for the coming of the bridegroom. And the reason, notice this, for their preparation and watching is twofold. The first reason that their preparation was important was one that we already mentioned. The bridegroom was coming, but they didn't know when. Over and over that point is shared. Even in this parable, verse 13, at the end of the parable, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which he's coming. You don't know when he's coming. If a teacher gave me, and I know I mentioned earlier that I don't like pop quizzes, but when I was in college, I still had professors that gave pop quizzes. And I will admit that pop quizzes kept me on my toes. Because in that class, not knowing when a quiz would be, And knowing that that quiz was worth a portion of my grade, I had to make sure that I was on it. I had to make sure that I was prepared at all times so that when that quiz came, I had the information. When we don't know if something is coming 
and yet we want to be prepared. It causes us to get prepared early. And that's the second reason I believe that preparation is important, and that is because there was a delay. If you notice in verse 48 of Matthew 24, it says, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Then if you notice Matthew 25, verse 5, it says, but while the bridegroom was, what's that word? Delayed. Then if you look in Matthew 25, verse 19, Matthew 25, verse 19, the Bible says in this parable, after a long time, the Lord of the servants came and settled accounts with them. So he was delayed. So constantly, Jesus is trying to get that point across to his disciples that, hey, my coming, you don't know when it is, but it's going to be delayed. And the evil servant had the attitude, well, hey, it's delayed, so I can do whatever I want. My master's not back yet. There's no rush or hurry at all. The fable goes of three apprentice devils or demons, fallen angels, who are completing their training with Satan. Each was required to present their plan to Satan for the ruination of humanity. The first person came, the first fallen angel proposed, we need to tell people that there's no God. But Satan was not pleased with that plan since many people have a gut feeling to the contrary. Many people just have this realization, this recognition, this knowledge that there's got to be a higher power. That won't work. Well, the second suggested, why don't we proclaim not that there's no God, but that there's no hell. There's no judgment. Satan thought to himself, you know, that's not going to work either because people know in their heart of hearts there's a consequence for the bad things that they do. Well, the third came and said, let's not tell them that there's no God. Let's not tell them there's no hell. Let's tell them that there's no hurry. And Satan said, ah, Go, tell men there's no hurry, and that will provide the ruin of many. And isn't that the truth, my friends, that when we say, you know what? There's always tomorrow. And those that are in school, you guys know a little word called procrastination. Mm, mercy. That is something that I think each one of us at some point in time, hopefully I'm not the only one, well, I can always do it tomorrow. But friends, tomorrow is a dangerous word. Why delay what you can do today for tomorrow? The road, as one said once, to hell, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, I can always do it tomorrow. You know, let me try it another day. And here, this parable, I believe, of the wise virgin teaches us, do not delay what can be done today. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. And friends, if you haven't given your heart to Jesus completely, I would suggest that there's no better time to do it than right now at 1222 on April 30, 2016. That today is the day of salvation. Some of you looked at your clocks. You're like, oh man, it's already 1222. Sorry, shouldn't have mentioned it. Shouldn't have mentioned it. All right. So, I believe the first thing to do on your to-do list, if you want to have a to-do list and make check number one, what do you do? I believe the first thing you should write on there is be watchful. Be watchful. Uh, have a sense of eager anticipation 
for the coming of Jesus. And part of that watchfulness is saying, you know what? I want to be prepared. And I believe that the Pathfinder Law, the first one, is one of the best ways to be prepared. What is the first Pathfinder Law? Pathfinders, I'm going to have you say it, right? By the grace of God, I will keep the morning watch. Keep the morning watch? What does that mean? Keep a watch for the morning? What does it mean to keep the morning? Keep the morning watch means that each day I get on my knees after I roll out of bed, and my first work each morning is to consecrate myself to the King of kings and Lord of lords and say, Lord, I put myself at your service today. To keep the morning watch is to go to the word of God each morning and say, God, I want to connect with you, Jesus. To keep the morning watch is to talk to our returning king and say, Lord, I want to know you more. To keep the morning watch is to abide in Christ. Notice what Steps to Christ says, page 69. Many have an idea that they must do some part of the work alone. They have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but now they seek by their own efforts to live aright. But every such effort, when you do things by yourself, must fail. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Our growth in grace, our joy, our usefulness all depend upon our union with Christ. And that, my friends, does take work. Union with Christ, communion with him, daily coming before him, fighting self is a battle. It is by communion with him daily, hourly, by abiding in him that we are to grow in grace. He's not only the author, but the finisher of our faith. It is Christ first, last, and always. He is to be with us not only at the beginning and end of our course, but at every step of the way. David said, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. My friends, to be prepared to keep the morning watch is to set the Lord at your right hand. Be watchful, my friends. Be watchful. Martin Presleb, a pastor that came to our church a couple of years ago, shared a story that's been shared from up front before about a children's home for kids with disabilities um, such as Down syndrome. And this children's home in the state of Kentucky was a Christian home, and they would teach the kids about Jesus. They would teach the kids about his love, about the cross, and that he was coming soon. And one day a visitor came to the director of this children's home and was giving a tour of the facility. And he noticed that on the front windows of the home that looked over the beautiful lawn that you could see the sun rising each day, that on that window was many, many handprints, finger smudges, and nose prints. Lots of smudges on this window. And they said, why all the smudges on the window? And the director said, well, we taught our kids that Jesus is coming in the clouds soon to bring them home. And so every morning, some of them will get up, they'll go over to the window, they'll put their hands on the glass and their face and their nose against it and look out and look for Jesus coming back. And friends, I believe that that is the type of eager anticipation and watching that each one of us should do, amen? Day by day, uh, coming on our knees, and you could say that the glass is the floor, and get on our knees and say, Lord, I can't wait for you to come. Step number one, to-do list before Jesus comes back, be watchful. What's the second step? That's found in the parable of the talents. Again, a familiar one, verse 14. We won't read through the whole thing. But in the parable of the talents, 
where a man gives each individual a different amount of money. Five, two, and one says, go and make an investment. And as he comes back, he tarries a long time, he delays, he comes back. Two of them had doubled it, but the last had simply put it in the ground. And when I read that story, I think, you know what? The guy who put it in the ground, that's actually not a bad idea, right? I mean, it's not like he wasted it on popcorns, you know, at the movies or something. Like, he put it in the ground. He made sure that he wasn't going to lose that one talent. But friends, that's not what the master asked him to do. The master asked a return on his investment. And I believe that the parable of the talents teaches us, second thing on our to-do list, to simply be faithful. To be faithful to what our master tells us to do. To be faithful in the small and the big things. And Pathfinders, that is a core element of who we are as a Pathfinder club. If you look at these eight laws, the next five, two through six, I believe could be summed up in being faithful. Number two, doing my honest part. That means that when no one is watching, when I am by myself taking a test, when I am at work and my coworkers are not around, that I will, no matter what, be honest because God is watching. Do my honest part. Number three, I will be faithful in caring for this piece of property that God loaned me. This body that God has given me, I will eat healthily, I will exercise, I will do whatever I can to take care of what God has given me to be faithful. Number four, to keep a level eye. To keep a level eye. To make sure that the words that come out of my lips are pure and right. To make sure that deceit and making fun of others and putting them down is not something that I'm a part of. Number five, being faithful and simply being courteous and obedient. Letting people go in front of me. Listening to my parents. Listening to my boss. But more importantly, being obedient to God. Number six, being faithful in my devotional exercises. And not just waking up each morning. But when I come before God's presence, I will be careful and reverent. I will walk softly in the sanctuary. I will come before God and say, I want to be faithful in my walk with you. To be faithful in the big and the small things. A preacher once shared, his name is Fred Craddock. In an address to ministers, caught the practical implications of faithfulness. To give my life for Christ, he says, sometimes appears glorious. I think to myself, I want to give all to God. I want to pour out myself for him. I'm ready to go in a blaze of glory. And he writes, we think giving our all to God is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord. But he says, in reality, as we look at our lives, though there's some truth to that illustration, that more often than not, God has us take that $1,000 down to the bank and cash it in for quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents here, listening to the neighbor's kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost, showing up at a committee meeting, giving a cup of water to an individual that's thirsty. Giving our life, he writes, to Christ isn't always glorious, but it's done 25 cents at a time. 
Sometimes it's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. And my friends, to be faithful, the parable of the talents teach us, is to be faithful in the small and the big things. Notice what Testimonies to the Church, Volume 1, says. Belief in the near coming of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. That's all we, we believe in, right? We've been talking about that. We believe that Jesus is coming soon. But that will not cause the true Christian to become neglectful and careless of the ordinary business of life. The waiting ones who look for the soon appearing of Christ will not be idle, but diligent in business. Their work will not be done carelessly and dishonestly, but with fidelity, promptness, and thoroughness. Those who flatter themselves that careless inattention to the things of this life is an evidence of their spirituality and their separation from the world are under a great deception. Not the truth. You know what? It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I take care of my family because I'm going to heaven. I don't belong here. That's a deception, she says. Their veracity, their faithfulness, their integrity are tested and proved in temporal things. If they are faithful in that which is least, they will be faithful in much. Amen? Amen. To be faithful in the small and the big things. Number one on our checklist is to be watchful. Number two on our checklist is to be faithful. And lastly, number three is found in the story of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25. And I want to read, starting in verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. The Bible says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. We just read 31, Matthew 25. Talking about when Jesus comes back in His glory. Verse 32 All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, using a common Old Testament illustration that God's people are the sheep, and God is the shepherd. Verse 33, he sits them into two groups. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Now, Pathfinders, how many of you have sung before or other kids here, I just want to be a sheep? You sing it? Yeah, I just want to be, right? That's where this song comes from, right? I just want to be a sheep. And here, these sheep are at God's right hand, which is a sign of his favor, and the goats are at his left hand, which is a symbol of his disfavor. But the question that I have, because if, if you notice in verse 34, notice what the sheep get. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They obtain eternity and they are with Jesus forever. Now friends, more than ever, I just want to be a sheep, amen? I just want to be a sheep. But what is the criteria? How does God separate these two groups of individuals? The judgment criteria in verse 35 is this. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. 
I was in prison and you came to me. Notice what Desire of Ages says, commenting on the same thing that we just read. She says that Jesus pictured to his disciples the scene of the great judgment day. And he represented its decision as turning upon one point. When the nations are gathered before him, there will be but two classes. And their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the prison or person of the poor and suffering. Now, friends, sometimes I have wrestled with this chapter because I believe that we see people coming to the earth's problems. And as they look at all the people that need food in the world, as they look at all the people that need water in the world, the solution, many say, is just to give them food or just to give them water but zero gospel. And friends, that's not what he's talking about. Social justice is not what's being described here in the sense that we just do it and that'll solve all the world's problems. Friends, last time I checked, Jesus is the only one that can take away the sin in this world, amen? And so here what Jesus is talking about is a group of people that have internalized the love of God in their life so much so that it naturally comes out of them and that their actions reflect that, thus in turn helping those in need. The goats are surprised when Jesus comes to them and says, hey, you didn't help me. And they have this attitude as if to say, well, Lord, if we would have known that the poor and sick were important, if we would have known that we should be helping those people, we would have done it. As if to say, well, Lord, we're surprised. I mean, you should have told us we should have gone and helped those people. God's like, guys, that's that's not the point. The point is, is that those that are the sheep, those that are on the right, have come to a point where God's love has so affected them. They've internalized it. They've said, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus with all of my heart. I don't want any sin in my life. I'm going to work for Jesus until he comes. The cross of Christ has impacted my life so much that I can't help here. Let me share with you the joy that I have in Jesus. The last checklist item that I believe Jesus desires us to do before he comes back is simply to be kind. To be kind? To be kind. And if you look at the Pathfinder laws, the last two Pathfinders, I believe, speak to just this thing. Number seven, what is that, Pathfinders? To keep a what in my heart? A song in my heart. Wow. That means that Christ's light is in my life in such a way that when other people see me talk and act, it produces a song in their heart and joy in who they are. Keep a song in my heart. And then lastly, go on God's errands, saying, you know what? I'm going to go where Jesus wants me to go. I'm going to be his hands and feet. You look to the pledge, I will be pure and kind and true. I will be a servant of God and a friend to man. Notice here, I love this. um, We'll come back to that, but this quote here, page 60, a call to stand apart. When hearts sympathize with hearts, burdened with discouragement and grief, 
When the hand dispenses to the needy, when the naked are clothed and the stranger made welcome to a seat in your parlor and a place in your heart, angels are coming near and an answering strain is responded to in heaven. Notice this. Every act of justice, mercy, and benevolence makes melody in heaven. Wow. You want to produce more noise up in heaven. You want to produce some more singing up in heaven then simply be kind and share acts of benevolence. The Father from his throne beholds those who do these acts of mercies and numbers them with his most precious treasures. This past week, I spent two days at Pathways to Health, and I see some individuals that were there. I know the Alvarado family, the Sarsosas were there. Um, Perhaps, oh, there we go, the Quijadas were there. Hopefully, I'm not missing anyone else there, but um, uh, beautiful, beautiful ministry, Pathways to Health. Pathways to Health is an organization of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they shared over $30 million worth of free health care to the residents of L.A. They expected, I didn't hear the final number, but some 10,000 people. And I was there on Wednesday and Thursday, and it was amazing as you looked in line that these weren't just homeless people. Right behind the person with a cart, that was homeless, that had all of his gear in there. Right behind him was the guy who had nice Nike tennis shoes and headphones and highlighting a book. Why? Because people in L.A. needed health care. They needed help. And here, the Seventh-day Adventist Church got to share that hope with them. I was standing in line. I was part of the chaplaincy team and so we would go and talk to people. And, you know, when someone's standing in line for six, seven, eight hours, and it's hot outside, and they haven't gotten care yet, and they might be waiting all night, anxiety can kind of come up in the heart. And so the chaplain's role were there to talk with people and pray with people. And I was talking to one individual named Steve. Steve was my age, and we enjoyed having a conversation about millennials, our age group. He was assistant manager at McDonald's, and we talked for about 40 minutes. And we talked about life, we talked about leadership, we talked about his grandfather who had passed away this past year, and his grandfather greatly influenced his life. Down in Mexico where the funeral was, there was a thousand people that came to that funeral because they had been impacted by this one man's life. Talked about a lot of different things. And about three-fourths of the way into the conversation, he said, you know, Jeff, I came today with a burden on my heart. In fact, I was heavily discouraged today. The last two or three weeks, I've been depressed. Steve, why? What's going on? And he shared a common problem with millennials. And he said, my girlfriend broke up with me. And about three weeks prior, more than that, he had found out that his girlfriend was in another relationship unbeknownst to him. And he said at McDonald's, you know, I'm this leader, I'm the assistant manager, and people are coming to me trying to uh, get advice, and I, I just can't do it. I'm discouraged. But he said, you know, Jeff, coming here today, knowing that, and he got a pair of glasses that he needed, knowing that I'm going to have a pair of glasses Knowing that, you know what, life isn't as bad as I thought it was, gave me hope. And Steve left that line with hope. There was another individual, name was Nada or Nada. 
And Nada drove 45 minutes from her home in Orange County to the Los Angeles Convention Center. And on the way there, she was arguing with God. She had heard on Facebook about your best, best pathways to health, and she hadn't seen a doctor in eight years. She was from Thailand, had come over here to work, and for the last eight years had desperately wanted to see a doctor, but couldn't afford it. And on the way there, she was having an argument with God. Lately, she had been wrestling with his existence. She had grown up in a Buddhist home, but had talked to some Christians, and she angrily told God, God, I don't believe you exist. If you exist, Prove it to me. She had sensed some sort of connection with a higher power in recent weeks. And as she arrived at the mega clinic, she had no idea who was putting it on. She said, I thought it was from the government to help people. I never thought it was from a church. She received her sought-after medical assistance. I'm not aware of what type of assistance she needed or was helped with, but she was helped. And afterwards, she began to cry as someone asked her about her experience. As she thought about the unexplainable kindness of the volunteers, she said, when I was thirsty in line, someone randomly came up to me, and just at that moment, I was thinking, man, I could use a glass of water, and someone reached out a glass of water and gave it to me. I walk into the convention center, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten since this morning, and someone hands me a lunch. The Best Pathways to Health had handed out lunches, and she had received this kindness, and she said, I've never had this experience before. People here have such kind hearts. It touched me. And she went on to say how she wants to find ways to help people as well. And she asked, hey, when can I volunteer at this mega clinic? And lastly, in this article, she said, I feel a good vibe around here. And just today, I think I've accepted God. All because of the kindness of strangers. Friends, Jesus is coming soon, amen? Jesus is coming soon. And as we look at the world today, we see so much need. And we say, where do I even begin? What am I supposed to do? I can't go out there and give those Bible studies like the pastors, or I can't do this, or what am I supposed to do? Jesus simply asks three things. Number one, Jesus says, be watchful. Be watchful. Uh, have an eager anticipation for the coming of God. Think about it. Talk about it with your family and friends. Jesus is coming again. Be watchful and be prepared. Secondly, Jesus asks, be faithful. Be faithful in the things that God is asking you to do. Be faithful in the small things. Be faithful in saying, I don't want sin or self any longer. Pathfinders, be faithful. And lastly, Jesus is asking you to be kind, to show love to those around you, to have Jesus so much in your heart that as you talk with others that you can't help but talk of what Jesus has done for you, that you seek out to be a friend to man and a servant to God, 
that you seek out to go on God's errands. God has someone for you to be kind to this week. I encourage you to pray about that. Be watchful, be faithful, and be kind. We want to go ahead and stand for our closing hymn, We Have This Hope. And we'll go ahead and sing just the first verse and chorus. And after the first verse and chorus, we invite you to remain standing as the pastor.